screen, Michael, the first slide. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about the future. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. When times are good, be happy. Is there anything wrong with what you were listening to besides the fact it was odd, I know, and it's not the best way maybe to open up a sermon, but I want to try to get your thoughts. Oftentimes we do draw our, you could say, sublime theology sometimes from secular music. And a song like that can have a very picking up kind of a sound to it. Hey, be happy. Everything's cool. No problem, man. Everything's okay. Right? Be happy. Don't worry. What's wrong with being happy? Well, there are times to be happy, of course, but the way the scriptures talk about happiness may not be the way the world understands happiness. For instance, if we can show the next slide, the Bible teaches us that Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Those are the happy people. Happy is the person whose sins are forgiven and whose transgressions are covered. Hallelujah. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. Those are the happy people. Now, what about circumstances in our lives? What about circumstances in our lives? Uh, Mr. Molly there in his song seems to say, there's no problem. Everything is going to be okay. But there are problems in life that we can't always say it's going to be okay. And if we just dismiss those problems as being sort of under the guise that everything is okay, everybody's going to be happy, that's misleading. You probably all know the serenity prayer, but listen to the words of it. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right here in this verse, and that's by Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote that in the early 30s, 1930s, and I believe that the AA picked it up. Bob Wilson and others use that, and they still use that as a toolbox in the toolbox of uh, AA programs. But here, Solomon says, when times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, don't be happy. But what? Consider this. Consider what? God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything 
about their future. Now that sounds quite pessimistic. That sounds almost hopeless. When things are good, be happy. I hope that you are blessed, that you are happy. I hope things go well for your life and you and your life. But that may not necessarily be the case. And we know that it's not like that all the time. The book of Ecclesiastes, as a matter of fact, tells us in the third chapter that there's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. It's time to be sad. There are seasons. There is a time and a season to every purpose under the heaven. So we can't always be happy. That would be misleading. That would be a misconstruing of what we have in Scripture. But what we should do when things aren't so happy, when we get into those valley periods, those are the periods where Solomon says, no problem. No, no he doesn't say that. He says, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. Now you might say, is God behind the bad things that happen in our life? Does God allow us to go through troubles in our life? Sickness? Difficulties? Things that we, we can't hardly handle them. And at those points, Solomon is saying, consider this. God has made one the happy days as well as the other. Now, us more... 21st century modernists, because of all the amenities we have and the wonderful advantages we have with technological advancements in our day, happiness comes easy. Difficulties are not well taken. And we want to bypass them. We want to ignore them. When people die, sometimes they want to get, they'll have their, their, the family will have the body cremated and they won't have a service for six months later. And I've been to them, and I can say that they really don't sense the reality of what it means to be mourning over a loved one. I know there might be circumstances, so I'm not trying to point anyone's fingers. Consider this, though. Consider God. Consider that God is in control. He's sovereign over everything. Even the bad things that you go through, you can be serene by considering this, that God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. This is so typical of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's sort of like you could say a theme of the book of Ecclesiastes might be like uh, trying to figure things out or um, how should we live? And Solomon is writing from that perspective. Consider. Adam Clark writes, At the beginning of anything, we are often apt to make very rash conjectures and often suppose such and such things are against us and evil and everything is going wrong. It's very easy to get depressed and down under certain circumstances. But this is where the key comes in. Consider this. Consider this. There's a purpose behind it, though we may not know what it is. We're asked to consider this, what, that God has made the one as well as the other. And we really may not know the conclusion of the matter. It says in Psalm 77, verse 19, Thy way is in the sea, and thy paths in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Let's not try to play God and try to figure him out and why he does what he does all the time. It's close as you may get to the Lord and how well you may know him. And that's something that we all want to do. We want to get to know him better and better and better and better. 
but we're still probably not going to end up understanding why he allows one thing and another thing to happen in our lives. But that's part of life that we just have to accept. Now the next verse, 15, Michael, can you show that slide? Verse 15, in this, notice this, meaningless life of mine. Meaningless life? How can you say meaningless? Well, again, we're looking at this thing, or the author here, Solomon possibly, is looking at this thing from his vantage point. And he sees life in a vain way, as meaningless. And what does he go on to say? I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. That would certainly create an attitude of despair, the meaninglessness of life. And this is Solomon's take on life, that it's meaningless. That could create a real toxicity in a person. If you have that kind of a spirit. Some have believed that Solomon wrote this at a period of his life where he was down in the dumps. When he was in Proverbs, he got up on the mountain a little bit. Okay? And especially maybe the Song of Solomon. But it's good sometimes to look at things the other way. You know, we often hear that expression, only the good die young. The wicked live long in their wickedness. How ironic. We seem to think that punishment ought to be executed against people in this world. Some of the worst people have lived the longest lives. You can't judge a person's character or God's approval of someone by the length of time that they live in this world. But we do know that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. But it goes on to say, and this is, again, this whole thing about meaninglessness. Uh, um, you know, in my office, sometimes when I look out, I have one window that's clean, the other window that's kind of smudgy. And this is sort of one of the pains that you might say Solomon is looking at things through the smudgy glass, and he doesn't see things so clearly. And other times, he's looking through another pane, and he sees things clearly. Um, when I was in high school, I had to do a... Uh, for, for uh, I believe it was uh, chemistry, no, chemistry or um, biology, that's what it was. So I had chosen for my, my paper to do was on the effects of smoking on the, on the lungs. So what I did is I got two mice. I put one mouse in, in one jar and the other mouse in the other jar. And I had my wife, I wasn't a smoker, but I put a hole in the top of the, of the uh, container, and I had my mother blow smoke into the one for this particular mouse. The other one, just normal. Did this for one month. Then afterwards, I dissected the animals, the both of them, and I took their lungs out, and I put them out. And they looked the same until I put it under a microscope. When I put it under a microscope, the lungs of the mouse were black as you could, couldn't imagine. I took pictures through the micro, microscope so that I could add that to my paper and, and show that. I got an A, I think, on, on the whole thing. But my point is, when we put things under the microscope, we're going to see things that we don't see ordinarily. And I think sometimes the author is looking at things in a very general way, a broad look, 
But when you stop and pause, like it says in the book of Psalms, the word selah means to pause and consider. Put it under the microscope. Take a step back. Listen, don't rush through the Bible. Don't rush through the chapter. Don't rush through verses. Meditate upon these things. Give yourself wholly to them that your profiting may appear in all things, Paul says to Timothy. Verse 16 says, do not be righteous or over-righteous or over-much-righteous, some translations read. Neither be over-wise. What kind of advice is that? Don't be too righteous and don't be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Again, it's under the title, the heading, that life is meaningless. Why put all that effort into it? Why, why pursue righteousness? Why pursue wisdom? It's all going to end up meaningless anyway. You know why? Because you're going to die. And from the, from the book standpoint, death is sort of like the termination of everything. So whatever you've got in this life... That's great, but you're going to leave it behind and you can't take it with you. That's the author's perspective on death and no thoughts really on the afterlife. This is where we have to put, go into the New Testament. This is where we have to go to other portions of the scriptures and look at these other chapters that give us up such hope. Like Paul says, if in, the, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. And maybe that's where the misery comes out in the author's writing of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because they only see hope in this life, not so much in the one to come. But Jesus has given to us the authority and the understanding that I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. So we can look at death and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? We have assurance that we have life beyond the grave and that what we do in this world will be passed on to the next. Because whatever we do in this body is going to be revealed in the new body in the days to come when we sit before our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't exert yourself. Why put in the effort? Solomon is saying. Now verse 17. Again, another why this, why that. Do not be over wicked. And not be a fool. Why die before your time? That's kind of puzzling. Is it possible to die before your time? We always say, it's God's appointed time. It's appointed unto men once to die. You don't know when you're going to die. Only Jesus really knew when he was going to die. One man was told, was it Hezekiah, that he had 15 years to live. He didn't have the specifics, and it ended up the Lord extended his life because of his humility. God extended it. But only Jesus was the one that not only knew when he was going to die, but he knew how he was going to die. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up. That's amazing when you think of it, that Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. So even though they try to push him over the brow of the hill or take stones to try to stone him, he couldn't be put to death. I must die the death of Calvary's cross. That's the only way I can be put to death. How then can we die before our time? The way you would die before your time, you live a debauched lifestyle or a riotous life or a reckless life or an undisciplined life. Rather than 
exercising your body, nourishing your body, caring for your body, that will extend your life. I think that's the norm. But those that choose a certain lifestyle, do not be over wicked, do not be a fool. You choose that route to go the broad and crowded road to destruction, your life will come to, to an end in a short amount of time. I think that's what the point is here that Solomon is telling us. Why die before your time? Why choose that route? It's important, too, that we think about what route are we taking in life? How are we living? What does Jesus say? Take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the best path in life to take. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's the route to go. Are you going that route? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. So praise God if you and I are Jesus followers. Now we can get closer to those steps in following his footsteps more closely than we possibly are already. But at least we know who the captain is of our salvation and who is our leader and who we want to follow. He is our pioneer that is going before us blazing the path. Verse 18 says, it is good to grasp the one and let the other go. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. That's the NIV translations. Or you'll be safe from all extremes. Uh, we often hear that too. I think sometimes our relatives unsaved, they say, oh, you're too extreme. You're, you're too gung-ho on this stuff or whatever. We can't be more radically dis disciples of Christ than what we should be. We can be intimate followers of Christ with avid pursuit after him, and we can't care what people are going to say about us. I want to follow Jesus. If the crowd doesn't go, that's okay. One with God is a majority. I'd rather be right with God than wrong with the world than right with the world and wrong with God. Can you say amen to that? I'd rather be right with God. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the side that I want to be on. Verse 19. Wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rules in a city. <laughs> what, a, what a statement. Wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten kings in a city. Now, ten rules or ten kings in a city, that's mighty power. And, of course, he's writing in days when battles and so on were commonplace, but the wisdom is what exceeds the force and the power of man's carnal ways of approaching things. Wisdom makes one wise person. More powerful. The wisest aren't without fault, though. Because verse 20 says, There is no one on earth who's righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Someone says the wise are not to be respected like incarnate angels, but sinful sons of Adam. I say sometimes that the best of men are men at best. So as much wisdom as someone may have, and they have persons to be esteemed, men, women, 
whoever that is, wisdom is the principal thing. The knowledge is wonderful too, but wisdom is really the application of knowledge in your life. There's no one that's perfectly wise. That's why we're all encouraged. If any of you lack wisdom, let them what? Call on God, who gives liberally to all men and appraids not. Call on God for that wisdom. And even though there are wise people in this world, there's no one on earth who's righteous. There's no one who does what is right and never sins. Even the wisest person falls into that category. No, no one is perfectly righteous in their own righteousness, and no one does what is right and never sins. That's a fact. It tells us elsewhere that no one lives that doesn't sin. We are in that category. We will be till the day we die. Who's going to deliver me from this tabernacle of death, Paul says? And that deliverance won't come fully until we get transformed by the coming of our Lord Jesus, who's going to change our mortal body into immortality and our corruptible bodies into incorruption. There's no one on earth who's righteous. There's no one who does what is right and never sins. But there was one who was sinless, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that the righteousness that really matters before God is not our own righteousness. Paul talks about the, law, the righteousness of law-keeping. That is insufficient. We can never match the righteous requirements that God has on his standard of thinking. That's why we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. People are fooled thinking that they can do enough that will be satisfactory to God, and they reach that state of acceptance with God because of righteousness. Now, there is a righteousness that is attributed to us, and I would say I can cite in the book of Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the robes that the saints are robed with. They're called the robes of the righteousnesses of the saints. And I think that's the righteous deeds that come from the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by God. I have no righteousness of my own that's acceptable to God. There was only one righteous. But amazingly, that righteous one, Jesus Christ, the just one, died for us, the unrighteous, the unjust. And that righteousness has been transferred to me. And I then get his righteousness. So before God, you and I as believers in Christ have this perfect righteous standing before God that can never be obliterated. Praise God for that. I have a righteousness from God that's acceptable to him because it's his gift to me and gift to you that gives us that acceptance before God. But at the same time, there's human responsibility. What do we do now that we are saved? How do we live? That's the big question that's being asked in the book of Ecclesiastes. How do we live in this world of meaninglessness and vanity? And sometimes I think we all kind of revert to that kind of thinking. Because we still are in the natural realm, and the natural mind is still there, and sometimes it subdues the spiritual mind, and we don't walk as spiritually as we should. We become carnally minded, and that's something that we all are going to deal with. Sometimes we just feel like not going to church, feel like throwing it all in, feeling like, I'm not going to read my Bible. You know, you don't want to, of course, boast about that, but the reality is, Deep down, sometimes those thoughts come out and you feel like your, your efforts are meaningless and that they're vain. 
And even Paul talks about sometimes his labors that they could be construed as being vain or meaningless. Verse 21 says, Now do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Hmm. When I was uh, nine, I think I was nine years old, I grew up in the downtown part of Worcester. Uh, so it, stores were all over the place. Banks, uh, uh, supermarkets, pharmacies, corner stores, pizza places, whatever. Everything was right there. So I only knew the in, inner city, the downtown, and that was my trip day to go downtown and shop around or poke around or whatever. But I had a cousin that lived in Boylston. He lived on, on a pond. And uh, I, occasionally I would get invited to go with my cousins over to their house. And I enjoyed catching frogs and taking the BB gun and climbing trees and uh, enjoying the, the outdoors. Um, and, and it was a, a real joy to me. But one night I was upstairs sleeping with my cousin who was asleep in the next bed. And I could hear my aunt downstairs saying about, when's Gary going to go home? <laughs> and she added some more words like, uh, I don't think I was pesty either. I don't think I was bad necessarily. But she had five children. Having the sixth one maybe wasn't a joy to her, I understand. But at nine years old, when I heard that, I could not go back to sleep. And I could not enjoy the rest of the time around her because it was in my mind what she had said. She said it to her husband. And not knowing that I was awake, it was probably 12 o'clock or whatever it was when I should have been sleeping, but I heard her say that. Boy, that was a stinger. And it was hard to digest. Didn't get over that, really, to tell you the truth. I felt like, boy, I didn't know she thought that, that badly of me. It really hurt my feelings. But you see, the problem was here, I was what it says right here, I shouldn't have been doing. Do not pay attention to every word people say. Or you may hear your aunt cursing you or saying something bad about you. And I heard what I wish I never heard. And you know, let me say this in her defense too. And I think on our defense, sometimes we say things rashly that we later regret. Or we're saying it with a close friend or family member, and or maybe you're even thinking these kinds of things. We all have that difficulty. Matthew Henry says, as we be truly angry with our, if we be truly angry with ourselves, as we ought to be, for backbiting and censoring others, we shall be the less angry with others for backbiting and censoring us. In other words, you and I have done the same thing that they have done to us. If they backbited us, which is exactly what my, my aunt did, she was backbiting me, I probably backbited her at some time in my life. You know, how do we handle those kinds of things? We can let them eat us up and, and, and get, get ourselves all worked up about it, or we can take an attitude like, you know what? They're just like I am, or I'm just like they are. As, as, what, as uh, face answers to face, so the heart of man to man. When you look in the water and you see a reflection of yourself, that's what you're seeing in your fellow man. Their heart is your heart, your heart is their heart. It's identical, especially even among Christians I'm talking particularly. 
and we are not without fault and without flaw. We certainly are guilty of that. Verse 22 says, For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that true? It, it curse sounds like a, a, a very vulgar word, but cursing here simply means that you've said something ill towards somebody else. And you know that in your heart. That's why we're told to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.18, I believe. Keep your or 23. Keep your heart with all diligence. Try to suppress those things that would cause you to have these bad thoughts. Unfortunately, we do have them, and they may come out of us. And something may be said to me, or I say something about you. I hope you have. As the New Testament says, forgive one another. Don't let, don't let that rule your life and be a, a, a fence between you and a brother or a sister. Get over it. Who are you anyway? Only by pride comes contention. If you think more highly of yourself, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because if you think more highly of yourself in a proudful way that you are blameless, you have, you're, you're, you're misleading yourself. Because you have enough flaws and faults in you like I do that we're all worthy of some kind of criticism that others may have. So don't be so in tune with what someone might be saying about you. And I'm I'm not trying to say, hey, go ahead and gossip about your fellow Christians. I'm, I'm not promoting that, of course, at all. I'm just talking about odd situations that occasionally may occur in our life where somebody is saying something about you or has said something or you have said something. Remember, that's kind of the whole, uh, you could say, the, the fate of man. That's, that's the boat that we're all in, so to speak. And it's almost impossible sometimes to not have a bad thought about somebody. But the best we can do is to judge ourselves. Take the moat out of our own eye so that we don't try to take it out of somebody else's eye. And be more concerned with yourself than with others. Sometimes some Christians, they want to just, you know, look at everybody else, and they have nothing coming in this direction at all. And, and, and not, it's nothing but complaint after complaint after complaint when there's so many faults of my own that we need to judge. Again, meaninglessness of life. But praise God what Jesus has done. The greater than Solomon is here, as I said before. Solomon, if you want to get, get maybe sort of the negative side, the natural side of life, great book, God-inspired. This is an inspired book. This is one of the pieces of the puzzle that forms the whole tapestry of God's picture for us. We cannot pull it out there. There's a reason for it. I encourage you to read it. It, has, it does wonderful things in your life. A sister one time was reading it, and God saved her through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all scriptures given by inspiration and is profitable. And so we even recognize the book of Ecclesiastes. Even though it may look through, light, look through life with a smudged pain, it's the reality of the way life is looked at from a certain vantage point. But praise God for the greater than Solomon who has come, who has given us more light, a clear picture, a better understanding, and no one could say what he said. The things that I heard from my father, I'm telling you. The things that I've seen from my father, I'm showing you. I'm telling you things that Abraham and other righteous men never heard in seeing things that they never saw. 
Hallelujah, we got a greater than Solomon. And it says of Jesus, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, oh, you being the all-wise God. Thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of yours, Lord, and in including in the canon of Scripture the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, that causes us oftentimes to ponder our lives and ask ourselves, is there meaning in my life? Maybe, Lord, I'm looking at my life in a meaningless way. Maybe I see things around me in meaningless ways. Oh, God, help us, Lord, to be able to understand that a greater than Solomon has come. And even Solomon himself could have his moments where he could talk about the end of the matter is to fear God, to keep his conclusion, to keep his commandments. This is the conclusion. Lord, we just pray that you would give us that kind of wisdom so that we can be even more powerful than ten kings in a city. Lord, not that we want to be puffed up in knowledge or wisdom, but, Lord, we want to walk in this world in a way that glorifies you. And, Father, we, we crave to have that wisdom so that we can order our lives, the order of the lives of our families, our children, our loved ones, Lord, in a way that could be honoring to you. So, Lord, we, like James tells us in his book, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And, Father, this is our desire, that we would have more wisdom so we would know, Lord, how to live a life more godly and honoring to you. And if any, Lord, here do not know you, we pray, O oh God, that the Holy Spirit would work in their heart and give them an understanding, yes, that without Jesus, they should be depressed. They rightfully are depressed, and they're not right, Lord. Have mercy on them. Open their eyes and their heart. Draw them to yourself. Give them a vision of the cross that they may call upon his name and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We ask these things, Father, in the precious and worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let's close.